Luke chapter 1, I encourage you to take a few notes this morning and uh, follow along with us in God's Word as we study. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and churches all over our nation are recognizing this day, praying for an end to abortion, uh, calling on the church to act in Christ-honoring ways, reminding ourselves that this is a pressing issue still. And it's an extremely sensitive issue also. And so I want to begin with a few statements that I hope will set the tone for this morning from the outset. Uh, First of all, to those of you whose lives have been impacted by abortion, I want you to know up front that you are precious and you are loved. And the forgiveness of Jesus is perfect and forever. And we are your friends, your family, and we love you so, so, so much. Second thing I want you to know uh, is I want to acknowledge that although today I I will focus primarily on the issue of abortion, uh, I want you to know that I recognize that the sanctity of life is a broad umbrella. It covers a multitude of issues and touch points, things like elder care, foster care, adoption, a multitude of economic issues. Uh, as well as race issues. So we just recognize at the out front that this is a broad issue. Uh, Third thing I want you to know is that my sermon today, parts of it lean heavily on the work of John Piper. He has for many years, in my estimation, been one of the uh, most important and most faithful pulpits when it comes to speaking on the sanctity of life. Uh, As in so many things, I encourage you to spend time with his work. I cannot commend it strongly enough. So why is abortion something that we continue to talk about? Well, I would say it's because at a national level, uh, it continues to expand and grow. Uh, and then at a local level also, we see its impact uh, on many, many lives also growing. Uh, let me share some information with you. Uh, just recently, Planned Parenthood released their annual report, and in it they shared a few of these numbers. Um, they say in their annual report that Uh, Abortion services only represent 4% of their total care to people in need. But that 4% represents, according to their numbers, 345,672 abortions in the last year. Uh, The most abortions Planned Parenthood has ever recorded in the history of their organization. Nearly 1,000 pregnancies a day ended through Planned Parenthood alone. Uh, In their annual report, they also state that uh, in this past calendar year, uh, they received more money from taxpayers than ever before. That's $616 million. Just this past week, Planned Parenthood announced their intentions in 2020 elections to put $45 million towards opposing pro-life candidates. Uh, It's a serious nationwide matter. But it doesn't just exist at a national level. It exists closer here at home as well. Uh, You need to be in the loop on a new proposed law called Bill S-1209. Bill S-1209. Massachusetts currently restricts abortions at 24 weeks of pregnancy, but Bill S-1209 would extend the possibility of abortion beyond 24 weeks if a physician determines it's necessary to protect the patient's life or their physical or mental health, or in cases of fetal anomalies where the fetus is incompatible with sustained life outside of the uterus. 
This law also makes it possible for minors to have abortions without parental consent. It reads this way. Medical judgment may be exercised in light of all factors, physical, emotional, psychological, familial, and the person's age, relevant to the well-being of the patient. Uh, One of the co-sponsors on this bill, there are many co-sponsors, but one of them is Patrick Kearney of the 4th Plymouth District. If you live in Situate or Marshfield, he's your representative. Now, the basic argument from the pro-choice lobby is this, that women should be allowed to make their own decisions about their own health. And on this, I think we can all agree in principle, but we disagree in practice. The church stands firmly in the rights of women, and especially those tiny women and those tiny boys uh, who don't have a chance at life because of the state of current laws and human hearts. So why is it that Christians believe in the dignity and value of life at the beginning of conception? Why is it something that we are so, so passionate about? Well, I want us to spend time in Luke chapter 1 this morning. And in the account of the incarnation of Christ, we learn some valuable lessons that shape the way we think about the sanctity of life and about the beginning of life at conception And in fact, the incarnation of Christ gives us five ways to think about uh, the sanctity of life. So I want you to follow along with me as I read. Uh, This Christmas passage is actually incredibly appropriate uh, for this very Sunday. Follow along with me, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David, The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, How can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. And then the angel left her. In those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. This beautiful passage uh, tells us much about life, and especially about life in the womb. And so let me share with you five ways the incarnation of Christ 
informs us on the value of life. The first thing it teaches us is that babies are a gift from God. When we think about pregnancy, when we think about babies in utero, uh, we think of them as gifts from God. Toddlers, it's a coin toss. (laughs) Babies, a gift from God for sure. Uh, In Luke 1, we meet Elizabeth and Mary, and in this story, both of these women experience miraculous pregnancies. Uh, Elizabeth is very old. We didn't read her story. If you were to start at the beginning of chapter 1, you would get the full uh, story. But she's very old, and she's past childbearing age. God intervenes and miraculously enables Elizabeth to become pregnant by her husband, Zechariah, and God has special plans for their baby, John. Mary also is given a baby by God. She's not married. She's a virgin. Her pregnancy is unique among all pregnancies. She carries a baby from the Holy Spirit, and God has special plans for her baby named Jesus. Now, it's not only miraculous pregnancies that signify that babies are given by God or a gift from God. God's people have always understood that all babies are a gift from God. Consider Job. It's a challenging example, but it helps prove our point nonetheless. In Job chapter 1, Job receives the sad news that his children have died. And in his grief, he cries out to the Lord, and he says in Job 1.21, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. So the Lord gave his children. They, they were conceived and born by God's will. That, that is God's prerogative. The Lord took. That is also His prerogative, not ours. And the church has always shrunk back from intruding on the rights of God. God gives and God takes. Birth and death are His to grant, not ours. So God's people have always understood life to be precious, and especially because we understand that babies bear the image of God. Every human being is an image bearer of God. And we are unique in creation this way. Stars do not bear the image of God. Panda bears do not bear the image of God. Only people do. Genesis 127 tells us that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And after God created man and woman in his own image, what happens next? Well, Genesis chapter 5 verse 3 tells us that when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. So this shows that the image and the likeness of God is passed on from generation to generation. It's not just the first pair who bore the image of God. It's every living human. This line of thinking continues throughout the New Testament, even in James chapter 3, verse 9. It says that men are made in the likeness of God. So we have people, uh, babies who are gifts from God. They are image bearers of God. And the Bible teaches that we're made by God. Psalm 139, 13, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. This beautiful poetic language describes the intimacy, the closeness of God in the creation of people. So pregnancy is God's doing, and it's through human helpers, and he's put us in the womb. He's multiplying his image through humanity, and his work happens especially in unique ways at conception. And this is true of all people, not just a select few. 
God has assigned value and dignity and personhood to the baby in the womb, and therefore, so do we. There's another way the incarnation of Jesus informs our understanding and value of life. Second, the Bible says that the baby on the inside is the same as the baby on the outside. The baby inside the womb is the same as the baby outside of the womb. Uh, So, I want you to consider the word used here in chapter 1. It's also used in chapter 2 for baby. And a quick little Greek lesson for you, if we get nerdy for a second. The Greek word used for baby is the word brephos. B-R-E-F-O-S is how we'd spell it in English. Brephos. And brephos is used by Luke in a few specific places here in the story. Uh, so this word is unique in that it, it doesn't have any connotation of embryo or fetus. The word brephos wouldn't be used to say, it's, it's not equivalent to fetus or embryo, it just means baby. And that word's used in both chapters 1 and chapters 2 to describe John in the womb and Jesus in the manger. So let me show you on the screen here, in Luke chapter 1, verse 41, We're told this, Elizabeth says that the brephos, the baby, leaped in her womb. And in verse 44, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the brephos, the baby in my womb, leaped. If we were to fast forward to chapter 2, the angel tells the shepherds, you will find a brephos, a baby wrapped in strips of cloth and lying in a manger. Verse 16, they found the brephos lying in a manger. The point I'm making here is that what Jesus and John were outside of the womb, they were already inside the womb. Luke doesn't use different language to describe a baby in utero and a baby out of the womb. It's the same word to describe both. Jesus was the God-man in Mary's womb. When the Holy Spirit caused Mary to be pregnant, she was not pregnant with anything less than the Son of God. The baby inside was the same as the baby outside. And today, science has only made that easier to believe, not harder. Uh, Just this past week, a friend of our church came into the office and shared with us uh, her ultrasound pictures, eight weeks old. And the resolution is amazing. And this baby is not much bigger than a lime. But when you look at that picture... You don't see a blob of cells and tissue. You see a baby. And it was awesome to hear her say, look at, look at this. And you can see both lobes of the brain. And when they put the ultrasound on my belly, the baby was moving around. And then the baby stopped as if it was posing for a picture. And I mean, they saw all of the. They could see the heart beating. They could see the limbs moving. They could see all these things happening. At eight weeks, a baby in utero is sucking his or her thumb, recoiling from pain, responding to sound. All the organs are present. The brain is functioning. The heart is pumping. The liver is making blood cells. The kidneys are cleaning fluids. And there's a fingerprint. And yet virtually all abortions take place later than eight weeks when the baby is even further developed. But the Bible's clear. 
Babies on the inside of the womb are the same as babies on the outside of the womb. Babies do not arrive at dignity and value at a certain week of pregnancy or when the pregnancy is finished and the baby has been delivered. The baby always has God-assigned value and dignity from the moment of conception throughout their eternal life. The Bible doesn't stop here. The incarnation continues to teach us about the value of life. And the third way it informs our understanding of life is this. It teaches us that the Bible treats babies in the womb as persons. Babies in the womb are persons. This is a big deal. Uh, In this account of the pregnancies of Elizabeth and Mary, when the babies are referenced and described, they're described as persons and they experience things that only persons experience. For example, they're both given names prior to being born. In fact, they're both given names prior to even being conceived. Zechariah, you will name him John. Mary, you will name him Jesus. So they have an identity. They have a plan. They have an existence of sorts uh, before they're even conceived and born. But the fact that they have names adds to their personhood. Uh, we had a fun experience with a baby name uh, in one of our pregnancies. Uh, in our, this was many moons ago. I was a youth pastor. And the way my wife Melissa and I played the game was we would share with our friends and family the gender of the baby, uh, but we wouldn't share the name. And so then all of my teenagers were like, come on, just tell us, Cody. What, just tell me. What's it, I, I won't tell anyone else. I said, okay, I'll tell you. But you've got to promise you won't tell anyone. I won't tell us all. I said, okay, we're going to name the baby Saffron. And they said, Saffron. And I said, yeah, because, uh, you know, it's, it was my great-grandmother's name. It's a really important name with a lot of I made it all up. I, it's a spice. It's not a name. Maybe you know someone named Saffron. They've got to be a, a wonderful person. But I'm not naming my baby Saffron. But I just wanted to see, how's it going to go? How's it going to spread? And uh, sure enough, we got whispers, you know, a kid would walk up and be like, hey, how's Saffron? <laughs> yeah, I'm, Saffron's doing great. So uh, on the day that Avery was born, <laughs> uh, our teenagers showed up with a sign that said, welcome Saffron, and uh, it's, uh, it was fantastic. Names give personhood. And these babies in Luke chapter 1, they had a name, they had personhood. Not only did they have names, but other ways we see them as persons is this. In verse 44, Elizabeth's baby expresses joy. Only persons express joy, feel joy. Also, Elizabeth's baby is filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice how the baby in Elizabeth's womb responded to Mary who was carrying the Son of God. In verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 44, it says, You see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside of me. Now, Luke tells us that Elizabeth said this to Mary because she was filled with the Holy Spirit. She sees Mary, the baby leaps for joy, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and then she says, the baby in me leaped for joy. This wasn't just Elizabeth in some sort of Neanderthal state trying to interpret weird movements in her womb. The Holy Spirit gives her this understanding. This baby moved not because it's uncomfortable in you, the baby leapt for joy in you because your Lord is present in the womb of your cousin. 
So this is what persons do. Never in the Bible is any animal described as being filled with the Holy Spirit. Only persons are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's true here of the baby John as well as Elizabeth. So what Luke is doing is he's treating this child in the womb as a person. He uses the word baby, just like we described, as he would later use it to describe Jesus in the manger. He uses the word joy, which is what persons feel. He uses the phrase filled with the Spirit, which is what God does to persons. He assumes that he's dealing with a person in the womb. So the church has always viewed personhood as starting at conception. Again, not at some point in the middle of a pregnancy and not at delivery, but at conception There is a person in there. We're not non-person in the womb and then person out of it. We are persons at conception. And so the, the incarnation of Christ builds this powerful argument for us that babies are a gift from God, the same inside and outside the womb, and they are persons at conception. But it doesn't stop there in informing and helping us understand the value of life, even in a broader way. The fourth lesson the Incarnation teaches us about life is that hope and restoration are there for those who have had abortions. We can't talk about the sanctity of life without also talking about the hope there is in Jesus Christ. And if we're going to talk about the sanctity of life, the value of life, we have to talk about all of life. Those who have had abortions, are precious to Jesus Christ and valuable to his church. Life after abortion is excruciatingly difficult. Women might be overcome with guilt and shame. It might come in waves. It might come at random times. Women may feel forced to remain silent about this. It isn't just something you talk about. Suffering is emotional, mental, psychological, physical and spiritual in nature in the aftermath of an abortion. It's interesting, all the reasons Bill S-1209 would advocate for abortion are exactly the reasons why one should not have an abortion. It will not protect you from mental, physical, and emotional suffering. Now, just as strongly as we believe that abortion is wrong, we also believe that God's grace is abundant and his restoration is total and his love never fails. And so if you, sister, have taken part in an abortion, I want to tell you the good news that you can be reconciled to God and he has made that reconciliation possible through Jesus Christ. Those who have had abortion or been impacted by abortion are not a different degree of sinner. They don't require a different redemption than everyone else. They're not super sinners compared to the rest of us. We all have sinned in an infinite degree against the infinite holiness of God. And the only rescue for any of us is that God would take on flesh and be born. And that he would go to the cross and die in our place for our sin. He would take our sin and we through faith would be given, granted his righteousness. We would be given Life through faith in Jesus Christ. Now for those who, it it happens often that Satan will remind us of our most hurtful moments. And he'll remind us of things we regret to this day. And a common conversation I have with sweet sisters and brothers is, I don't feel saved. 
I don't feel forgiven. I remember, and it keeps coming up, and I can't get past this. We will always remember. To not remember would be uh, to be something other than human. We will always remember. But here's how God helps us in this moment. When we remember the offense or when Satan reminds us of this thing, we remember also the promises of God that hold us firm and secure and forever. The Bible doesn't tell us that salvation is based on a feeling. Salvation is based on the finished work of Christ at the cross, and every person struggles at times with feelings of security in their salvation. And we might diagnose ourselves, I don't feel it, I should feel something different, but sometimes... What the Lord wants us to do is in those feelings of emotional uh, fragility is to anchor ourselves in his promises. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say there's no condemnation for those who feel like they're in Christ Jesus. It just says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, sister, you take the pain of that memory that the enemy is twisting against you. And you hold it up to the beautiful grace of Jesus Christ and his word. And there you find your strength for today and your hope for tomorrow and all that you need. Memories, pain, regrets, those things are not signs that we're not saved. They're signs that we are being saved when our hope and trust is in Jesus Christ. The problem we have is it's hard to believe this. Hard to accept that God could love a sinner like me. Hard to believe that I could be really truly forgiven when I've done so much wrong in my past. But I want you to remember what the angel said to Mary when she had difficulty understanding God's plans for her. The angel said this, with God, nothing is impossible. So sister, would you rest in the love of Jesus Christ? And brother, would you trust Jesus Christ to save you and forgive you and rescue you wholly and completely? The Bible teaches us that there's hope and restoration for those who have been impacted by abortion. Fifth and finally, the Bible teaches us that this is a spiritual battle with rules for engagement. Many in the pro-life camp have employed a philosophy of the ends justify the means. And so they believe that we must do whatever it takes to end abortion. And I understand the passion behind this sentiment, but this way of engaging is wrong. There is an end, but there are means that do not justify that end. I'll give you an example. Prior to moving here, my family and I lived outside of Wichita, Kansas. And Wichita, Kansas, for many, many years, was the epicenter of the late-term abortion debate. There was a doctor there. His name was George Tiller. And he performed late-term abortions. For many, many years, he did this. And his clinic was regularly picketed. It was bombed a few times. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a hotbed of debate. In 2009, George Tiller uh, on a Sunday morning, was serving as an usher at his church as he did every Sunday morning. 
and a pro-life extremist walked into the lobby of the church, fired a bullet, killed George Tiller. Uh, That man was arrested. He's in jail now for the rest of his life. But the ends don't justify the means. We can't be pro-life and take life. We know that. I I don't think I have to convince you of that. The only people that would need help with that would be those who are deranged in their thinking. But here's what we've got to be very, very honest about. The death of George Tiller has not slowed abortion, nor has it aided the pro-life position. The ends do not justify the means in these things. The incarnation of Christ teaches us how we engage in what is ultimately a spiritual battle. Jesus didn't enter his creation with an army or with weapons. He came as a baby, born into poverty and into obscurity. And he accomplished our salvation, not by taking life, but by laying down his life. That humility, that self-sacrifice is informative to the church who wants to advocate for life. So when pro-life people employ tactics beyond the boundaries of God's word, such as the use of graphic images, shock and awe tactics, vitriolic language, and violent behavior, then they have parted ways with the power and hope of Jesus Christ. The use of extremist language and activities is a sure sign that we do not trust Jesus Christ and the tools he has given us to engage in this spiritual warfare. These unchristlike tactics lack the power and the effectiveness of the gospel. Now, like so many of you, I would love to see the laws in our nation change in favor of life. But I want you to think back. Uh, God's people, Israel, at multiple times in their history, practiced child sacrifice. They worshipped a made-up God named Molech, and they would throw their babies into fires. And the solution for that depravity was not a change in laws, it was a change in hearts. When God's servants turned God's people back to God, they left behind this depravity. Our greatest tool as we advocate for life is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Laws don't change hearts. Jesus does. And so, however long it takes for those laws to change, we don't lose heart and we don't lose hope because Jesus has given us tools to engage with. And our weapons, so to speak, are love and mercy and truth and prayer and gospel proclamation. And our enemies are not people. Not of any political party, not of any personal persuasion, not of any ideology, our enemies. God's word tells us this. Our enemies are never people. But we change hearts, we change people, we advocate for life when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus told his disciples, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And so the cross has to inform all of our action on behalf of the unborn and on behalf of those whose lives are impacted by abortion. That's one thing I'm so proud of, of our pro-life ministry in our church. It's called Truth in Love. 
Not truth in violence or vitriol or when, no matter what. It's truth in love. We're informed by the love of Christ. And we live out the love of Christ as we educate and inform and come alongside brothers and sisters to help them in this cause. So the incarnation of Jesus Christ, Luke chapter 1, tells us so much about the value of life. Babies are a gift. They're the same inside the womb as outside. They have personhood. And restoration and hope are abundant for those who have sin in their life. And Jesus shows us the way to engage in these matters. How incredible is Jesus that this morning he teaches us the value of every living person. The beginning of human life is a magnificent thing. It's the work of God. It's the forming of a human person in God's own image, a person who will live forever. My prayer for South Shore Baptist Church is that we would live with a deep reverence for the gift of human life from from conception to eternity, and that we would never cease to be amazed at the gift of life, the gift of children. Would you pray with me, please? So, Holy Father, we thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the gift of our lives. Thank you for the sanctity of our lives, for the dignity you have given us, the value you have given us, the personhood you have given us. Father, for these things, we thank you. Lord, empower your church to fight this spiritual battle in your power and in your way. Forgive us where our passion would take us beyond the boundaries of your word. But let our faith in you be seen as we employ these things that you have given us to engage in spiritual warfare with. Let us be people who are known for love and mercy and truth and prayer in the gospel. Equip us to advocate for life in every way this issue manifests itself. Give us eyes not just for legislation about abortion, but Lord, help us to be attentive to economic policies and health policies that impact lives. Thank you for your perfect forgiveness for all those who trust in you. God, I pray that you would lift the heart of the one who continues to carry these wounds. And Lord, that you would draw close to you the one who doesn't walk with you in faith and trust but is carrying this burden on her own, on his own. Lord, would you give them new life today? Father, we ask you to move in power so that the act of abortion is no more. Would you change human hearts and would you change the laws of our land uh, so that life would be protected? And raise up among us an army of people ready to provide care to babies who need homes. And raise up among us an army of people to provide support so that moms can keep their babies and raise them and dads can keep and raise their babies. Help us to do more than point and yell. Lord, help us to pick up, to carry, to embrace, to love. Thank you for the life you have given us through Jesus Christ. Lord, raise up this church and amplify your gospel through our witness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.